It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to Emerging Markets Weekly, the new podcast from the Beyond Bricks team at the Financial Times with me, Josh Noble. This week on the show... We're going to look at the Indian economy and ask whether inflation or growth is dominating government policy. After that, we'll turn our attention to the Russian government's decision to sell off $29 billion of assets over the next three years. And later on, we'll hear an interview with Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group, about whether US-China business relations are really getting worse. The playing field uh, has shifted dramatically. It's never been level before the Western multinationals had the advantage. Now in many sectors, the Chinese uh, state-owned corporations and, uh, and national champions do. Uh, but nonetheless, we have to recognize that the playing field has shifted. And finally, as always, we'll look at our most read post of the week on the Beyond Bricks blog. Joining me in the studio, we have Stefan Wagstill, the FT's Emerging Markets Editor, and in a moment we'll be joined on the phone by A. Prasanna from ICICI Securities in Mumbai to talk about our first story of the week, and that's India. Last week's headlines were dominated by the visit of UK Prime Minister David Cameron as he sought to strike up a special relationship with the former colony. But within India itself, there was perhaps a bigger story at work, On Tuesday, the Reserve Bank of India raised interest rates by 25 basis points and also raised the reverse repo rate by 50 basis points, more than the market was expecting. So what can we learn from the decision? Joining us on the line now from Mumbai is A. Prasanna, economist at ICICI Securities. So, Mr. Prasanna, thank you for joining us. How will this change uh, from the RBI to the reverse repo rate help it fight inflation? First of all, I think by hiking it by 50 basis points when most of the market is expecting a 25 basis point uh, hike, I think signal that RBI is concerned and uh, it's on the margin a bit more hawkish than what the market is thinking. Also, I think it's uh, the motive was also driven by the fact that uh, the liquidity outlook in the Indian banking system is quite uncertain. And uh, the current corridor, before this policy, the corridor was 150 basis points. And what RBI is trying to do is to narrow the corridor so that if, if the liquidity situation keeps changing, at least uh, the volatility in the overnight rates comes down. Recently, central banks in Brazil and China seem to have gone relatively cool on inflation. Do you think that the, the, the Indian central bank and the Indian government are slightly behind the curve here? That's partly right. I think they were behind the curve, uh, say, at the beginning of the calendar year, say, in the first quarter. And I think they're doing a bit of a catch-up now. I also think what is worrying RBI is that uh, even as outlook for the food prices and the agricultural prices, uh, that outlook is improving. Uh, the manufactured prices have moved up and they don't uh, look to be coming down in a hurry. So probably RBI is worried about core inflation also moving up. And I think this, this action kind of uh, signals their concern with that. Stefan. Mr. Prasanna, the politicians in Delhi are also worried about inflation, as we know. But do you think the government is doing its bit in terms of contributing to the fight against inflation? When you say the politicians are worried, I would uh, like to qualify it. I think they're sounding worried, but I don't think there's any real sense of worry. Partly the reason is, uh, I think politically still, the government has kind of gotten away with uh, high inflation. 
So on and off, you have this opposition protests uh, on the streets and in the parliament. But uh, I guess in the wider population, there doesn't seem to be much of an angst as far as inflation is concerned. I would say it's at the surface level the government is worried. As far as what the government has been doing, yeah, I mean, one could argue they could have done more uh, because, as you must be knowing, government is one of the largest players in the agriculture sector. In a sense, the government agencies procure a lot of food grains from the farmers directly, and then they try and distribute it through the public distribution system. And obviously, there are uh, quite a few bottlenecks in that system. So you have a situation where the food prices are running at food price growth is running at double-digit levels, and government is sitting on huge food stocks. So probably they could be a bit more effective in distributing those food stocks. I, I guess uh, that, that's been a long-standing problem, and nothing has been done to rectify that. And how much still hangs on how the monsoon will turn out? I guess quite a bit depends uh, on how the monsoon is uh, on, on how the monsoon will turn out. But on that front, I think in the last couple of weeks we have had good news. The rains have definitely improved. And uh, the the weather department is forecasting that this will this situation will continue to August and September. So overall, looks like we're going to have a pretty normal monsoon, and therefore the hope is that the food uh, food grain prices uh, uh, should start coming off uh, once the harvest comes in. Mr. Prasanna, thank you very much for joining us. Now let's turn to Russia, where the government has announced plans to sell off 29 billion dollars of assets, including stakes in Spurbank, Rosneft, and VTB. Stefan. Why is the government selling off these stakes? A couple of things come together here. One is the money that they hope to raise will be very useful in plugging fiscal and other gaps. And the second, from the point of view of the liberals in the administration, and that, of course, is a relative term, in the view of these liberals, Russia needs to have a bigger private sector influence in the economy. And what we've seen during the crisis is the state increase its stake in a number of key industries, in effect rolling back the private sector. And what the Liberals now want to achieve is a move in the other direction, to increase the private sector role. But it's important that in none of these cases, is the, in none of these major cases at least, is the government proposing to uh, relinquish control. It's bringing in foreign investors as partners, but it will keep a grip on these key companies. Um, you mentioned foreign investors. Do you think that it's going to be foreign investors or big private Russian companies that take up these stakes? I think it will be both. Um, I think it will be a mix, and it's very early to tell. It will depend on pricing. There are foreign investors in a number of sectors uh, in Russia, some of them doing very well. Some have had tremendous problems. But to name one, uh, electricity generation did attract foreign investment when it was opened up. So I would be surprised if this time around there weren't a substantial number of foreign investors. And and the Kremlin, are they likely to let anyone... I mean, you said they're not going to sell off any majority stakes, but is anyone going to have any great influence over this this new company they buy into, or is it still going to be very much in the government's hands? I think it will be very much in the government's hands. However, the one thing that bringing in more private investors brings along is greater transparency. So the government... Uh, will have more explaining to do about whether these companies are managed, as will the managers themselves. OK, let's, let's move on to another story now that's been rumbling on in the last week, and in fact for a number of weeks now, and that's the state of relations between the Chinese government and Western businesses. Uh, the week began with an editorial on the pink pages of the FT itself from the Chinese Commerce Minister Chen Deming, declaring that China was open for business. 
Uh, yet we also saw the head of the Asia Business Council turned away from the border, despite having a business card that allows him, that should have allowed him, visa-free access. Earlier in the week, I spoke to Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group, the political risk research house in Washington, D.C., and I began by asking him whether he thought it was getting harder for American companies to be successful in China. Well, uh, I think there are two things going on. First of all, it's been difficult for a while, but American businesses in, in, a, in a challenging global context are starting to recognize it and go public about it. But yes, uh, it, it is getting more difficult for American businesses to, uh, to operate in China in a host of sectors. And, uh, and as, a, as, a surpri- as a consequence, it's not a surprise that we're starting to hear uh, the rumblings that we have from the American private sector. Uh, you mentioned before that nationalism was an increasing issue uh, with, with Western companies. Do you think there's any difference in attitudes from the Chinese towards American businesses and, say, large European businesses? Um, no, not particularly. Uh, I think what it really has to do with is how comparably indispensable these individual businesses are uh, to the Chinese and whether or not they're willing to play in the immediate term by Chinese rules. Are they prepared to provide technology that the Chinese can use? Are there local Chinese competitors that the Chinese would rather have um, in a significant position uh, dominating local markets? Uh, you know, it, this, the playing field uh, has shifted dramatically. It's never been level before the Western multinationals had the advantage. Now, in many sectors, the Chinese uh, state-owned corporations and, uh, and national champions do. Uh, but nonetheless, we have to recognize that the playing field has shifted. We've run a, the FT has run a, an editorial piece, uh, an op-ed piece from the Chinese Commerce Minister recently, uh, and he's basically come out saying China's open for business, uh, the Chinese have done everything they can to boost domestic demand uh, and improve uh, protection for intellectual property. What do you make of these arguments? Well, first of all, on the domestic demand front, I buy that. Uh, They are trying to boost domestic demand. They recognize it's a very long-term thing, but they they understand that it's critically important because they won't be able to sell the same level of Chinese manufacturer to the United States and Europe. Frankly put, we just can't afford to buy it. So they're highly incented to do that, and they're working on it. This is not a one- or two-year plan. This is something that's going to take over a decade. In terms of intellectual property, though, I mean, we, we do have to recognize the last 30 years, Chinese growth has been on the back of a lot of stolen IP, and that is not changing. Cybersecurity issues get massively more challenging, and the Chinese have not addressed that to the satisfaction of any multinational that I know. So let's put it this way. If the Chinese are doing a good job in protecting IP, somehow they're not getting that message out to the CEOs of any Western multinational I know because the Western corporates just don't buy it. You mentioned cybersecurity there. People have been hoping that the Internet would be this great opener for the Chinese economy. Uh, Do you think that's actually been borne out in results? Well, I mean, Facebook has uh, just hit 500 million members in this last week, and uh, they're not in operation in China. Uh, Google's market share has only gone down uh, over the last few months, despite the fact that they've come to some form of interim modus vivendi with the Chinese. Look, the Internet is just like the uh, election box, the ballot box. It gives you it's a multiplier effect. It's not a liberalizer. It just gives you much more of what you have on the ground. Uh, and in the case of China, uh, you have a lot of people that feel like uh, for a long time the West has industrialized. China hasn't. Western multinationals have dominated profit. Uh, Chinese firms haven't. And they'd like that to change. So I, I think we need to recognize that giving the Chinese the Internet will make them more vocal vis-a-vis their own Chinese government. It will not turn them into Americans or Europeans. Of course, the big uh, multinational versus China case we've all been reading about recently is Google. Eventually, the, the Chinese uh, relented or, or, or reached an agreement. Um, what do you think foreign businesses should learn or take away from Google's experience? 
Well, first of all, I, I would say that uh, you know the Google uh, relented as well. I mean, one of the reasons why Google uh, said that they were pulling out is because the cyber attacks were becoming too problematic. Well, that hasn't changed at all, and Google's now you know back and open for business. They they ultimately want to be in China. Look, if there's a fight between the Chinese government and the multinational corporation, the Chinese will win. And so if you're a multinational, you don't want to fight with China. You want to find a way to avoid a fight. First of all, if you can't avoid that fight, you're probably going to have to leave. Um, and so, you know, really it behooves you to look in advance and see how can we be important to the Chinese government and not just today, but for the long term. A lot of companies have gotten in trouble just like Goldman Sachs on financials, just like BP on oil, a lot of Western multinationals in China have gotten in trouble because they're looking to maximize short-term profit. They send their technology over, and suddenly, three years, five years later, they don't have anything left to offer, and the game has changed. Well, I mean, you know, frankly, shame on them, and they're going to have to get that right. That was Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Stefan, do you agree with Mr. Bremer? Do you think that American companies are selling themselves short in China? Well, I think it takes two to tango. Um, he's right that they should have been more careful five or ten years ago. On the other hand, there were expectations that China, having joined the WTO with a great fanfare, which it did, would increasingly play by the rules. And the main motivation for playing by the rules would be that China wants access to Western markets and Western technology in the West, for example, investing in U.S. companies. And this is where I think the quid pro quo will increasingly come. So it isn't just a challenge for Western companies. It's a challenge for Western governments. Uh, well, I'm sure this is a story that's not going to go away anytime soon. Finally, Stefan, let's uh, let's take a look at our most read post of the week on the Beyond Bricks blog. Uh, last week it was uh, overpriced iPhones. Uh, this week it's underpriced iPads. Uh, India's iPad lookalike, yours for only $35. What do you make of this, Stefan? This is, at one level, a PR gimmick. This is a very cheap uh, iPad made in India ostensibly for sale to millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users, particularly in developing economies. Trouble is, it hasn't been made yet, at least not in any numbers, and the Indian innovators will inevitably require East Asian partners, Chinese or Taiwanese or Korean, to make them. And as ever with these innovative products, at least as much of the secret is in mass manufacture as in designing the thing in the first place. So let's wait and see. Is India still lagging then, do you think, in actually producing uh, high-quality electronics in the way that Taiwan and China, as you mentioned, have been leading the world for years? Definitely. That's absolutely clear. And it's very difficult for India to catch up because in these industries, once you've established that lead position, you have enormous economies of scale, which makes it very difficult even for a low-wage economy like India to catch up. James Lamont, in his piece when he wrote about this, the, the $35 iPad, he compared it to the, the Tata Nano, the, the world's cheapest car. I mean, is that, is that the way Indian businesses are thinking now? They're going to build the cheapest of everything and they're going to build the most of it and then they're going to sell it to everyone? I think Indian business um, is quite rightly looking for the right sectors. Uh, the car industry is open to them because the car industry around the world uh, is based, bases production and development units in its big markets. India is obviously a big market, so India will compete in the global uh, car industry. 
Whether it will be comparable to China or, or, or a bit smaller is impossible to say, but certainly big prospects there. In electronics, the products are much more mobile and portable, so the same imperative to be very heavily based in every economy uh, is not so strong. I'm not saying it's not there at all, but it's much weaker. So I think, yes, India has got a big role in global manufacturing, but not in every sector. Cars will definitely be one of them. Electronics, mass production... Uh, more problematic. Stefan, I'm afraid we're out of time. But if you, the listeners, have any thoughts or questions on this week's show, then log on to ft.com forward slash beyond bricks and let us know. All that's left now is to thank my guests in the studio, Stefan Wagstil, and to April Sanna in Mumbai and Ian Bremer in Washington, D.C. And also thanks to you for listening. Emerging Markets Weekly was produced by LJ Filotrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.